now. This week in sport history. February 22nd, 1980, the Miracle on Ice game at the Lake Placid Winter Olympics sees the American team score one of the biggest upsets imaginable, knocking off the red-hot favourite and four-time defending gold medalist Soviet Union team 4-3 after two goals to the Americans in the final period. To outline how big a mismatch this was, the Soviet team consisted primarily of professional players, while the American team only had four players with any kind of minor league experience and were the youngest team in the tournament, and in fact, in US national team history. Going into this match, the Soviet Union had an Olympic record 27 wins, one draw and one loss, and had outscored their opponents 175 to 44 in those games, having not lost a game since 1968. During this one, American coach Herb Brooks had his players working with the lines of 40 seconds or less to stay full of energy for the third term. The Americans were lucky in the first period with a goal to Buzz Snyder from a tough angle, and then right at the buzzer, Dave Christian fired from the halfway line and the ricochet landed with Mark Johnson, who scored with one second left. The Soviets dominated the second period with 12 shots to two, but could only muster one goal to lead 3-2 at the end of the second. In the last period, the Americans used a power play for a rare chance on goal in which Johnson put away before Mike Arruzione put the USA ahead 4-3 with 10 minutes left. The Soviets attacked relentlessly, hitting the bar once and firing wide a few more times, but strangely, even in the last minute, never pulled their goalie. Al Michaels, do you believe in miracles? Yes, call will live on forever. The win ranks in the top one or two of most people's lists of top 10 moments in US sports history. And two days later, the Americans would clinch the gold medal with a 4-2 win over Finland. February 24th, 2010, Sachin Tendulkar becomes the first man to score a double century in an ODI cricket match, making 200 not out off 147 balls against South Africa at Gwalior, hitting 25 fours and three sixes. Tendulkar had had a couple of other close efforts in the magical milestone, retiring with cramps on 163 against New Zealand, making 175 against Australia, and then finishing unbeaten on 186 against New Zealand before all of this happened. I actually remember watching this one live at home with my dad. I'd just be in complete disbelief that someone had managed to pull off oh, yeah. what seemed to be unthinkable. I, I did not think it would be possible at, at all. And I probably didn't think about those postage stamp grounds, but yeah, incredible. But then it happened another seven times over the next oh. eight years, including three from Rohit Sharma, highlighted by his masterpiece, 264 off 173 against Sri Lanka in 2014. Now, it is worth noting that before all of that happened, former Australian captain Belinda Clark did have a 229 not out against the might of Denmark at the 1997 <laughs> Women's World Cup as part of three for 412 that Australia made, winning by 363. Denmark's top scorer, a blistering 16 by sundries. Wow. February 26, 1924, Marie Boyd of Central High School in Lona Coning, Maryland, scores 156 points in a basketball game against Ursuline Academy from Cumberland as part of a 163-3 victory. Central was one of the first really dominant high school teams, thanks largely to Boyd, and they actually went undefeated from 1922 through to 1925. The game was very different to the game we know and love today. It was played inside a cage with players often known as cages, and after every basket, the game would go back to the centre court for a jump ball, which is where a lot of Boyd's success came from. That must be where netball got it from. Yeah. A few nights before Central had played local rival Bial and their star player Sarah Hawes had done the unthinkable at the time, dropping 95 points on them. Hawes received all of the media attention and Central were pissed. They decided to make Boyd the undisputed scoring queen of Western Maryland. Their plan was simple. Use the height at the jump ball as they had a six foot three forward. She would tap it to one of their other players who would pass it to Boyd under the basket 
and this play worked to staggering 78 times in a row. This is, of course, the one we teased last week. Unfortunately, due to a lack of national press, the achievement was largely unknown outside of Lona Koning until Cheryl Miller scored 105 points in 1982 and Boyd's feet was finally given the attention it deserved. Boyd passed away in 1991, but her legacy will live on forever. February 27, 1959, the Chicago Cardinals trade running back Ollie Matson to the LA Rams for seven players, a 1959 second round pick and a player to be named later. The Rams were run by GM Pete Rozelle at the time, who went on to be commissioner of the league from 1960 to 1989. Matson had previously played at the University of San Francisco, where Rozelle was one of the school's information directors of sport. So they did have history. Interesting little story, though. The team was invited to play in the 1951 Orange Bowl on the condition that the club's African-American players, Matson and Burl Toller, didn't play. They refused. We've talked about this one before, too, mm, actually, yeah. Dodgy. Matson was drafted in 1952 after winning a bronze in the 400 metres and a silver in the 4x400-metre relay at the Helsinki Olympics. Talk about incredible talent in multiple sports. Funnily enough, the same year that the Rams made the biggest trade by one team for a player, trading 11 players to Dallas for the rights to eight-time pro bowler Les Richter. This trade, as massive as it was, didn't really work out for either team. The seven players traded to Chicago yielded a total of two pro bowls, and the Cardinals moved to St. Louis in 1960. They've only been to one Super Bowl since, losing 27-23 in the 2008 edition to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah, the one with Kurt Warner. It's a good game. Hmm. Sorry. That's <laughs> fine. Matson made the Hall of Fame, but the Rams didn't make the playoffs again until 1967, the year after Matson retired. They wouldn't win their only Super Bowl until 1999, which has just changed as of, what, about two hours ago? Yes, because we are recording this back in the past. Spooky. Happy birthday, Stewie. We've got a couple here. Now, they're both probably more your sports than mine. We've got a golfer and a tennis. So happy 59th birthday to VJ Singh and a happy 50th to Michael Cheng. VJ, one of the coolest golfers to ever play, even though I'm not a massive fan of golf, I do know the big man. And Michael Chang, well, I do remember watching him play as a kid too. An absolute energy ball Just on the a court. Blur of energy, honestly. In 1984, he won the Malaysian PGA Championship, but was later accused of changing his scorecard from one over to one under to make the cut. There was no proof and Singh denied it, but was given a lifetime ban from the Asian PGA Tour play. So he had to grind and make his way back onto the tour and had some successes in Africa, Europe and America before really breaking through in winning the 1998 PGA Championship. He would win the Masters in 2000 before winning the PGA Championship again in 2004, the same year he became the world number one, where he stood for 32 weeks. To this day, Singh has 64 professional wins to his name and is still a regular on the PGA Tour. Now, secondly, Michael Chang, like so many others, he's kind of one of these forgotten names from the 80s and 90s of tennis. Everyone knows Sampras and Agassi, but Chang was a cracking player. He won the 1989 French Open at just 17 years of age, and he made the 1995 French Open final, losing to Thomas Muster, and the final of the Australian Open in 96, as well as the US Open the same year, beating Andre Agassi in the semifinals both occasions. He was also part of the 1990 Davis Cup winning American team, so he's, he's done really well. Oh, yeah, he had a good career. Now, Chang actually turned pro and was world number 163 before his 16th birthday. <laughs> it's impressive. Oh, yeah. So he dropped out of school after getting his GED in grade 10 to turn pro. He became the youngest player to win a draw match at the US Open, beating Paul McNamee. Then he became the youngest player to reach the semi-final of a top-level professional tournament, as well as the youngest winner. And in August 1989, the youngest to make the top five in the world. 
Chang played in some monumental matches, the most noteworthy being the fourth round boil over at Roland Garros in 1989 as he beat top seed Ivan Lendl from two sets and a breakdown. And he battled through cramps to somehow win before knocking off Stefan Edberg in the final, also in five sets. And that was what made him so great. It was never about his power. He was just a short guy who couldn't generate the power that he, he probably wanted, but he just ran all day, got so many extra balls back into court, and then he had good passing shots. So an absolute joy to watch. Happy birthday to Vijay Singh and Michael Chang, two Indeed. absolute champions. This Week in Sport History. Thanks for listening to this Sport Blokes segment. Why not listen to the full episode and check out their Twitter at Sport Blokes. 